The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We're finishing up, I'm finishing up a series of talks on the Buddhist teachings on impermanence, one of the most central themes the Buddha kept returning to. And the basic idea uh, in terms of how the Buddha came to understand our human predicament, which is trying to be happy, but doing stuff in our attempt to be happy that causes us to be unhappy. And in a way, we can say that broke the, the Buddha's heart wide open. After he had sort of found his own way, understood what his heart was misunderstanding, and then it really got clear, oh yeah, everybody wants to be happy. And this is an especially useful time, you know, depending on where you find yourself on the political divide. You know, it's really nice for us to remember that all of us, those who have similar ideas or similar life experiences, those who have different ideas and different life experiences, we just want to be happy. But often what we're doing, how we're relating to our life, sets in motion suffering for ourselves and suffering for others, those around us in the wider world. And on and on it goes. And the Buddha, in his provocative way, said, you can't even conceive of the beginning of how we've been doing this, basically in trying to be happy, setting in motion unhappiness. So it's got some real momentum. It's a deep groove. And like in more specific terms, our approach to being happy is to identify with desire, which becomes craving. Like we believe, we trust, we take craving personally. If only, then I'll be happy. If only I become somebody, if only I become a perfect Buddhist meditator, then I'll be happy. If only I get rid of my bad habits, then I'll be happy. And in your small, like if you stay for the small group, it would be fun actually to hear everyone sort of name a few of your if onlys. Because we all have, if only I had a cup of green tea, then, you know, just that little buzz from green tea, then I'd be happy for what, 10 minutes. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It's sort of like this is why we go that way, because there actually is gratification when we get what we want but it doesn't resolve the problem. It actually masks the problem, so we avoid the problem, which is sense experience doesn't lead to lasting peace. doesn't mean sense experience isn't important, right? It is important. If we're starving, if we're being oppressed, if life isn't fair, that's a real disturbance. But just because life becomes more fair doesn't mean we're all of a sudden not going to have problems as a human being. Being privileged doesn't mean we're not suffering. It's still, I don't know about you, but most of us would choose to have affluence, choose to have our health, choose to be living in a place where people know how to get along, treat each other with respect, right? We'd all choose that, but, you know, being here in Minneapolis it's not a bad place, and still, right, I notice for myself, I notice as much as I can sense the people around me, 
You know, we're not perfectly happy. So what I thought would be useful to talk about today is the in Buddhism the word nibbana, you know, or nirvana is used for awakening, full awakening. And that's interesting word. First of all, it was an ordinary word at the time of the Buddha. It wasn't like a spiritual word. It was the ordinary word like the fire has gone out and now it's cool. So that word for the fire going out and now it's cool was nibbana or a related word to nibbana. So it really means that the fire has gone out and has cooled down. And now that's an interesting word for the Buddha, for uh, someone who is trying to share an understanding that it has arisen in their own life that has brought full freedom, let's say. Let's just presume the, Buddha's, uh, the Buddha was accurate in terms of reporting his own experience. And so that the fact that he chose that word, Nibbana, Nirvana, to like, oh yes, something, the fire of craving, the fire, the agitation, the burning agitation of if only, then I'll be happy, that's gone out. Now, the interesting thing is, as you hear that, and we try to imagine my if only, then I'll be happy going out, then... The only thing, often, the only thing we can imagine is like, I'll just stagnate on a couch somewhere. You know, if I don't have my if only, if only, I, I've been noticing, I don't know if it's my male midlife, although I am i don't think I can claim midlife anymore being in my 60s, but, <laughs> you know, I've noticed I'm attracted, and I have my excuses, but I've been attracted to getting a pickup. <laughs> it's that conditioning, you know, like... A little boy with my Taka trucks. I don't know, people from... It was just Minnesota that had Taka toys, Taka trucks. But they were big steel trucks, you know, that boys mostly got when we were kids and pushed around in sandboxes, you know. But anyway, we get this imprint and we want something that's strong and dependable. And it's just one of those, if only, you know, if only I had a dependable car. If only I... And and we sort of lean in, we we get spellbound by our if onlys. So now the Buddha's asking us, so by using a word like nibbana, the coolness, the coolness of peace, the coolness of contentedness, how that could be something that's quite beautiful and enlivening. Because it it's a real initially it's a real stretch for us. Because when we hear something like coolness, the fire of craving going out, we think of a loser. You know, somebody who doesn't have their act together, has given up, and counting the days until life ends, right? So we, we have to revision our aspiration. And I think this is why, um, just, you know, in terms of teachings, it's really nice to uh, sense the inclusive and generous exposure of love, compassion, how to integrate that with this coolness of wisdom that's often in Buddhist terms described as a deepening disenchantment, dispassion, 
right? We're disenchanted, not with the world so much, but with attachment to the world or dependence on our if only, then I'll be happy, right? So there's a real movement, you know, as insight deepens, then the mind, wisdom matures like, oh, you know what? There is no experience that's going to make this sense of me perfectly happy forever. That's not the point, that's not the role of sense experience to make somebody happy. Sense experience is just this tremendous, wild movement of causes and conditions. It doesn't have that personal purpose to make I mean, it's sort of arrogant to think of that, right? Like somehow the world of, you know, nature, causes and conditions is specifically here to provide you or me or all of us happiness, right? It's a real self-centered view of what we call the universe, that somehow that's its point to make me happy. And I don't know about your happiness, but my happiness is pretty fickle, you know, I think something's going to make me happy and I get bored with it pretty quickly. Even like relatively meaningful things, like having a nice home. And now I have a, I feel like a really nice home. But you know, I'm not getting a lot of juice from it. <laughs> Even though, you know, objectively speaking, it's a really nice place. It's comfortable. I have what I need. But then it, you know, maybe in the first, you know, every time we, do something and makes it a little bit nicer, then it, it sort of, I get a little juice from the niceness of my, the place where I live, but it's short-lived. I'm sure that would be true, even if I got the perfect pickup that's all-powerful and doesn't damage the environment, you know, runs on carbon <laughs> and just eliminates it from the atmosphere, right, the perfect pickup, or whatever, you know, it would be great for a while, and then it, it would no longer feed the ego, it would no longer be a source of satisfaction. And then I'd want this amazing camper in the back of the pickup where I could go anywhere and have all the comforts of life. Comfortable bed, you know, great kitchen, <laughs> all kinds of things. And on and on and on. And it's that's the burning of craving, the sort of endlessness of samsara, as we call it in Buddhism, where the wanting for something perfect, that burning, that hunger never ends. On and on and on. So the Buddha, after in understanding what happened to him with his own deepening of understanding, then he had to do the second task. He'd already done the task of liberating his heart from that loop of wanting, craving, if only, right? But then he had this other job now because of compassion. How can I articulate what happened to me, which wasn't about, you know, words, right? But now how can I articulate it in words so that other people can realize the same thing. So in, you know, in the way it is in early Buddhism, the insight, the liberation that the Buddha realized is available to anybody who sees and understands what the Buddha or any awakened person has seen and understood. There's not like one person's awakening is greater than another person's awakening. 
Anybody who fully awakens experiences the release of their heart no longer confused by those habits of if only. And this is sometimes described as a kind of coolness. So this last number, couple months, when I've been sharing some of the Buddhist teachings on impermanence, you know, the basic path the Buddha came up with is you're not going to be good for anyone unless you stabilize present moment awareness. You have to stabilize, you have to develop this particular mental muscle to be present with some continuity. If you don't do that, you're destined to be on autopilot, where you're the habits that have the most strength or momentum are going to sweep your mind or heart away over and over again. And the only way to break the mind's dependence on its habit energies is to replace the following of our habits, the predominant habits, with this capacity to be present. Because being aware of the habit energies is different than being caught in them. So that's the first step. It's like, you're just going to endlessly spin in the cycles of suffering, samsara, unless first and foremost you value present moment awareness and to develop that skill to be present so that you can be present with some continuity. Not just when you're sitting in a formal meditation time, but eventually in your days. Not, not that I or anybody I know can do this continuously, but the more we practice sincerely, the more there are just naturally moments of mindfulness through the day. I'm sure most of you can attest to that, right? Where you just realize, oh, it's like this now. This is being known. And then that might be sustained for some amount of time before the mind takes the bait, gets caught, spins with some drama, planning mind, worrying mind, judging mind, comparing mind, whatever. We're in that self-centered vortex for a while, not mindful, not present. But often those self-centered vortexes start to hurt and the pain wakes us up. Oh, what's going on? Oh, I've been lost in thought. I've been obsessing about this or worrying about that or wanting revenge or caught in that if only, then I'll be happy fantasy, right? But now we have space in a sense around it. Oh yeah, that was just that self-centered drama. Feels like this in the body. This is the reverberation of being caught up. It feels like this. Can it be okay? Can I actually feel what I'm feeling? Be here now, open, generously open, not afraid to feel the reverberation of what the mind has previously been entangled with. Because there's always something that lives on if we've been caught up in drama for a while. And it's not just the immediate, immediately previous drama, but all the years and decades, and even the cultural dramas that we're caught in, like the divisiveness of our politics these days, where we feel so justified to demean the other side. I mean, it's really amazing how um, we feel justified to hate, to throw out of our hearts, when if we were having a spiritual conversation, we would never openly say, yeah, it's totally okay to hate somebody, to demean them, to think they're not worthy of compassion. And yet, you know, in terms of politics, it's sort of a blood sport. And we 
somehow it's okay. And I've mentioned this a lot, just in, you know, the humor, the professional comedians, and just, uh, I find it funny, but I, I'm a little sickened by the meanness and the lack of compassion. Because even if someone is really doing harmful things, you know, is that someone we should have compassion for? Or is that somebody we should belittle? Because, I don't know about you, but you know, when you imagine somebody that you think is really a force for no good, a force for evil in the world, would you want to be that person? What is the appropriate way to relate? Does it mean that we let people walk all over us, oppress us, dominate us? That's not good for them, and it's certainly not good for us. It's really appropriate to do whatever we can, even at times to raise our voice and, uh, you know, get in the streets or whatever it might be. But that hatred or that demeaning kind of energy, it's basically, it's just another version of if only, another one of those, uh, the burning of craving, the burning of attachment, of grasping. So, so much of what the Buddha tried to set in motion is like stabilized present moment awareness. And then with that stable, ongoing present moment awareness, however stable, however continuous it is, then just have a more and more honest relationship. And what do we see? Well, we see everything's changing. I mean, we really saw that this week. So many, you know, because... Just like, I'm not even talking about the politics or the end of the election, it's just our own attitudes. Like, maybe deep despair, maybe extreme joy, and maybe everything in between, and maybe a lot of up and downs with all of that, right? We felt a lot of different things, probably. And so, but it's interesting how in every moment when we felt despair or we felt joy, in that moment, the idea was that's who I am in some sort of lasting or real sense. But now with some more perspective, we see, no, it didn't really last that long. And it's actually really helpful, you know, in terms of any hope that we might be feeling now. It's not like hope is bad, but we don't want to imagine hope is anything more than what it is. It's a hopeful feeling being felt. It isn't the truth. And just like if, you know, um, if, you know, your political orientation is different and you're feeling a lot of anger or despair, what is that? Well, that's anger and despair being known here and now. And we know it keeps changing. We don't want to build a sense of me around our hope or around our fear. Some of you have heard me because I quote this a lot from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and it's a, it's a, a sign to Milarepa, this one of the patron saints of Buddhism in, in Tibetan Buddhism, a character who lived back in the 1300s or thereabouts. And uh, one of the uh, messages he got from his own practice was on the steep slope of fear and hope the demons lie awaiting. When we get drawn into fear and hope, 
So this is an especially good time for a lot of us to uh, directly experiment with the coolness of non-attachment. Instead of getting seduced by any joy or seduced by any fear and locking in, it's like, who knows? Who knows? And we're really cultivating a taste, like how that who knows, how that openness and equanimity can be quite alive. And this is really, uh, it needs to be a realization. We have to actually discover that balance and evenness and the coolness of peace is actually a very functional, skillful, healing, beautiful way to live a life, a human life. We just don't have a lot of role models. That's the problem, right? We have a lot of role models who live their lives in a hot way, really, you know, acting out. And we're, we're inspired by that because, you know, at least they seem alive. You know, they seem engaged. They're not holding back. Because there is something like we trust about uh, disconnecting we know isn't the way. Turning away from life, turning away from what we're feeling, turning away from what's happening around us. We know that that can't be a long-term strategy. It may be reasonable for a moment to close the door, to turn away, to put things down, like we do when we sit in the morning. You know, those of you who have a regular sitting practice, part of the sitting practice is learning to put everything down, just not paying attention to our worries, not paying attention to our hopes, right? So when we use a meditation object like the breath or even a more expansive feeling of love like we did today and earlier in the sit, that's one way to put everything else down. But the other half of meditation and more generally the path is to learn how to include everything, to pick everything up. But we want to keep the silence and the stillness and the balance and the coolness and the peace even while we re-engage and have a heated discussion or make a difficult choice or, you know, relax into the hot mess of our families, of our jobs, of our world. Because it is. It's wild, it's hot, it's uncertain, it's ambiguous. It seems like that's just the territory of human life, generally speaking. There are periods where things are a little, have the appearance of being more orderly and settled. But that's, you know, those are usually arise because we're not seeing the whole picture. You know, we'll be in a peaceful meadow watching the butterflies flit about. But it doesn't occur to us that, you know, the temperatures are a lot hotter than they should be in November in Minnesota. <laughs> We've had an amazing, for those who aren't living here, an amazingly warm week after getting eight inches of snow maybe two or three weeks ago and a bunch of cold weather. And it's been in the 70s now for most of the last week which is really unusual for this time of year. So when we take in the big picture, we realize that even when things appear really nice on the surface, there's so much uncertainty behind everything, so many forces at play. 
that we know one thing. This heart can't count on anything except one thing. And that's really this direction of coolness. Now we could call it letting go, you know, counting on letting go, counting on non-attachment. We don't want to make it a thing because then it becomes part of that if only. If only I learn how to let go, then I'll be happy. And whenever we're attached to an if only, then we've created an enemy. If only I let go, if only I realize Nibbana, the heart that lets go, the heart that's free of all grasping, then I'll be saved. And so then what what happens to my mind? Now I'm afraid of attachment, I'm afraid of grasping, I'm afraid of anything that I want to hold on to. And then that just becomes the next way of grasping, you know. I'm identified with being someone who lets go. I'm afraid of being somebody who has attachments. So that's a too superficial um, understanding of what the Buddha is pointing to. Because even where there is liking, you know, like you're outside today, evidently it's going to get cold again here in Minnesota, so you're enjoying the sun and the relative warmth today in Minnesota. And... Is there a way to have that generous, that warm, open-hearted connection with the pleasure of being in the warmth and in the sunshine, but not losing the coolness, that vast understanding, and it won't always be this way? And that's really that integration of love and wisdom. If love is this quality, this generous quality of the heart that can say yes, and can grow roots of compassion when they're suffering, of appreciation when it's beautiful. And the coolness of wisdom is knowing that as beautiful or horrific as this moment is, there's a balance, there's an evenness, there's a peace that remains unstained. And I know it sounds paradoxical, like how can I be open to the feeling of being connected and caring and appreciating what's beautiful and being moved by the real suffering, how can I be in this exposed place and at the same time a heart that's peaceful and even and balanced and in a way unshakable? And that's why it's a realization. So we use these two ideas of that love being that total exposure and connection and heartfelt feeling. So it's not that we're not feeling. So that's like the human end of it. Love, in a way, as in the way I use the word at least, is the, um, is the word we use to point to what it feels like and looks like for a human being to be free, right? It's this generous, heartfelt connection. Because who or what would be afraid of being connected? If there's still somebody who's afraid of, a, of the exposure of life, that's, that's not freedom. So it's in a way, it's the active expression of the freedom the, that comes from the wisdom 
that knows how to let go. So this is a place we can experiment, you know, in those moments, those of you who have kids, where the interaction with your child is relatively settled and not so intense, then just practice realizing directly in your own mind, your own heart, that that real warmth of connection, that embracing the whole hot mess of my son, my daughter, my child, right? And and the not knowing how it's going to play out, right? And without losing that unshakable balance, that depth of peace, even though you know you can't control, you can't even protect your kid 100%. Same thing with those of you in, you know, romantic or intimate relationships or with people, dear friends, or passions you have in life about making the world a better place for the people who are more actively activists in terms of transforming the world. How can we really care and have that unshakable peace and balance? Do we need grasping to be 100% engaged? How might that peace, what is the, how might peace get in the way of engagement? Why do we sometimes think that non-attachment has to be synonymous, synonymous with disengagement and engagement needs to be synonymous with attachment? And this is really what the, the Buddhist teachings are pointing us to. This is a line that Venerable Analio uses. I forget if I read this last week. The void of emptiness is full to the brim of causes and conditions. So the void of emptiness is really the phrase sometimes we use in Buddhism. That vast space is really what makes the heart unshakable, balanced, peaceful, even. So that understanding like, you know, just it's just a metaphor, but if we're living this ordinary life on a particular corner where our house or apartment is, with these particular relationships, with this particular body, but the view is the view of the whole universe. And if we're in a multi-universe universe, then the view of all those universes, right? So we have the vast view, but that vastness is showing up in this very particular location, a white man in a 62-year-old body with these relationships, with this sexual orientation, with these responsibilities, with this kind of cultural conditioning, this baggage, right? But with that vast view of everything being included. That's a, a metaphor we can use. Because you know, like, when we get really... Um, the view is really specific to like this particular power dynamic I'm in the middle of with this other person and how come they're not treating me this way and that's the sum total of my view then everything that person says or does how they express their own cultural conditioning and whatever it's so impactful it's devastating I get completely 
pushed around, just like maybe we did with politics these last months, riding the roller coaster up and down around climate change, around all these impactful things. You know, the next incident of racial injustice that's gotten captured on video, you know, and then we're sort of face to face with the enormity of this sort of residue of hatred, racial hatred, and how it's just built in still in our culture. And then we just maybe feel crushed or maybe feel motivated or whatever our response is, you know, and our hearts are constantly pushed around. So how do we not lose that that aspect of love that allows us to connect and to feel, how to maintain that with the, uh, the great vast space? I've always uh, found it trustworthy how in a lot of spiritual teachings there are these, you know, emphasis on having insight into the reality of non-grasping, into that vastness. Like even in the guided sit today, you might have noticed, you know, starting with this more intimate warmth, connecting with the body in our life, and just this movement towards the vastness of balance and letting go. But the, it's always important to understand that then spiritual life is always about whatever insight, whatever deepening trust we have about the um, healing beauty of peace, the peace of non-grasping, the peace of non-attachment, then the next part of our practice, well, what is that space of peace, that space of balance look like when I have to be a parent, when I have to be a lover, when I have to be a concerned citizen? How does that peace then inform my re-entry into the hot mess of our lives. That's part of the practice. I think I mentioned last week or maybe two weeks ago this quote from Chanul, this uh, very well-known person who brought, who was part of bringing Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings, into Korea. Again, this was back maybe in the 1300s as well. And uh, so from China into Korea, but at the same time, some of the teachings on Zen, Chan Buddhism, which is what it's called in China, was being brought into Japan by Dogen. Um, this other person was bringing some of these teachings into Korea approximately the same time. And he had this statement, this teaching phrase, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So, first of all, we're not good for anybody, so we stabilize present moment awareness. When we do that, when we're able to be present, then we open to the immediacy of our own experience of our body and mind, and it teaches the heart to let go. Because as we see things are changing and not worthy of grasping and not personal, then the heart naturally develops disenchantment and dispassion into letting go, letting go of selfing, letting go of grasping because of selfing. Right? And the heart experiences moments of that free fall of non-grasping. We want to have a lot of humility about that actual experience of non, those experiences of non-grasping. Like, maybe I don't know what that experience is. Because intellectually, 
we know we know that experience or what those words mean you know to not grasp anything not to be identified or attached to anything but when we experience that it's it's sort of a real shift like a seismic shift in our understanding it changes us and then the peace like as we move in that direction where there's less and less grasping less and less attachment we really get a sense the flavor of that peace that vast space of non-grasping and then we want to like it that experience makes an impression in our heart our mind stream so then when we come back into our relationships and the messiness of our lives it's like keeping that impression of the peace in mind as we fall in love as we get involved as we earn our living as we take care of our aging body as we do our living that's really the scope of our practice so I'll come back to this next week or at least one more week on this subject as we wrap up these teachings really nice to be with everyone have a good week everyone this talk like all programs at common ground is offered freely in the spirit of generosity to learn more about common ground and its programs or if you would like to donate please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.